and welcome to episode two of the Guns on Pegs podcast. Huge thanks to everyone who listened to episode one and an especially huge thank you to everyone who got in touch to say how much they enjoyed it. Uh, and thank you also to everyone who got in touch with ideas for future episodes. If you're new to the podcast, my name's George and I'm the marketing manager and editor at Guns on Pegs. For this episode, once again, I'm joined by Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Say hi, Chris. How have things been down in Kent this last week or so? Uh, we're on top four now. The uh, Barockers haven't made uh, a comeback since our last episode, so all good down here. Thank you. Excellent. And very exciting. This week, we've got our very first special guest in the shape of wild food chef Tim Maddams. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. That's okay. I hope the, uh, hope the technology down here in Devon doesn't let us down. Nice to, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. Now, uh, everybody listening at home, you might know Tim from his appearances on River Cottage and Fish Fight with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall on Channel 4 uh, and other food shows like Sunday Brunch. Or maybe you've got one of his recipe books, um, one of which we recently included in our list of favourite game recipe books, uh, or indeed from his writing for The Shooting Times. Tim, your website describes you as a free range foodie. So um, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good question, isn't it? And um, what does that mean? Uh, well, that's very writerly of me to put something like that on on the website. Uh, <clears throat> I think for me, it just describes the way I work, really, which is I don't have a I don't have a restaurant. I'm not tied to any sort of one place. I, I roam about the country doing interesting foodie things with lots of different people, sometimes private clients, sometimes writing for someone, sometimes just uh, uh, it might be a, a, a collaborative event with a brewery or some mates or, you know, all sorts of fun things that I get to do. Fantastic. And I described you as a wild food expert. Um, would that be fair? Oh, no, 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 absolutely not fair. Um, I mean, for a first and foremost, I think it's really it's really important that I mean, wild food fits into lots of different categories. Right. I mean, you've got meat, you've got herbs and plants and then you've got fungus and then you've got fish and those are all different specialties and so i would suggest that the, the term expert so that we don't end up discussing um x as in has been and a spurt as in a drip under pressure <laughs> is, is 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 definitely not what i am because to be an expert i guess in wild food you'd need to be a botanist a mycologist a butcher as well as a, a livestockman a, a fisherman and a fishmonger and all of those things rolled into one now what i definitely have a little bit of interest in um, in all of those fields and I know uh, a fair amount about wild food but I don't want to be known as an enthusiast either because uh, I think that's a sort of bad in another way but can we put me somewhere in the middle that sounds fine yeah and um, so well obviously you're on our podcast um, uh, so you must have an interest in shooting so can you tell us how you got into shooting and maybe about your first game bird Oh, see, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna raise that. Is it all right if my first game bird is is a rabbit? Is that all right? I think we'll allow it. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty. It wasn't flying, obviously. It was quite low. Um, but and and then my first actual, I think the first bird I ever shot with a shotgun would have been a pigeon because I was out popping rabbits and one flew out of the hedge. I remember shooting this pigeon, and I, I'm to this day not sure who was more surprised, me or the pigeon. Um, but I used to wander around my um, auntie and uncle's little sheep farm with a with my aunt's 20 bore little thing under my arm, desperately trying to pop off a few rabbits. That's sort of how I got started. So, Tim, you're a big promoter, I think, of wild food in general, but more specifically game. And I think you're a supporter of the Country Food Trust. Is that right? 
Absolutely right. Yeah. So the country. He's, he's trust- a trustee. You're, 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 I'll, I'll butt in there. That's 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 how Tim and I spend quite a lot of time together, uh, as both as trustees of the Country Free Trust. And uh, so he's been very active. I'll, I'll say it now. He's been hugely active and uh, and a huge asset to the charity over the last few weeks, uh, specifically uh, during the time that we're in at the moment. So yeah, go ahead, Tim. I'll tee you up there to chat about what you've been up to on that front because I think right now it's sort of more timely than ever. Oh, thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, so George, I mean, I have been involved with the Country Food Trust for, you know, quite a few years now, as I know Chris has too. Um, And um, yeah, so I developed some pouches with them, which is obviously one of our products. We take um, game meat and we turn it into meals to give away to people who are in need. And at the moment, we're in a lot of um, strife in this country, as you know, and uh, and all around the world. So there's a lot of people in a lot of need uh, for a lot of different reasons. And um, so just recently, I've been... Uh, donning my driver's cap as well and helping to deliver some food around the country that the charity has had in store as well as um, help to support the current fundraiser. And can you give us an update on how that fundraiser is going? I know that there'd been a, some pretty sizable donations and, and it was going pretty well. Yeah, I think I had a little look on uh, on the fundraising page on Virgin Money Giving today and I think we were over £125,000. Chris, you might have a more recent update than that. I've been a yeah. bit off radar. No, it's, it's about there, uh, about £125,000, but there's also quite a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as well. I think the actual number could be a little bit higher. Just there's, It's amazing how much this has resonated with people. I think obviously when uh, when stuff like this occurs, it really is uh, a case of right back to the grindstone. The basic human needs come right to the fore, and uh, and that's why this appeal has has resonated so well. So, yeah, it's. I think it could be a lot bigger, but the country trust, where it does take us, is the country trust has now delivered over seven hundred thousand meals to people in need. Because um, Chris, you're a trustee as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So. Tim and I uh, enjoy doing that together, yeah. Yeah, and it would be good just to give people an idea. When we say £125,000 has been raised, just how many people that will feed. Yeah, I, and this particular appeal, is, it, it's not, this is not admin of the charity or anything else. This is straight into, uh, into food. Um, and it's essentially a pound per meal. That's kind of what it works out at. Um, so this one so far, 125,000 people. We've also, uh, because of the situation, obviously there's a lot of food uh, that's been purchased and it, and there is sort of sh- shortages in different types of meat. So we're now diversifying the charity slightly to make sure that we can get our hands on whatever comes available. Tim, and you could probably give a bit more of this. I know that in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of sausages, venison, a bit of everything, anything that sort of comes from the countryside that, that, uh, that, that's got you know, at, that we've got access to through our through our donors, we'll 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 get our hands on. Quite right, Chris. And I think you know, it, it it's lovely that we focus on using pheasant, and we've stretched our wings recently to start delivering venison as well. And we're looking into some vegetarian products. But in the short term, as you say, basically any you know any countryside produce from the UK that that we can get our hands on at a good price, we're just moving that to people in need. And I think right now that's the great thing about our charity is we've been able to respond and react so quickly i mean hats off to tim woodward our 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 ceo because he's been incredibly quick to turn around um from what you know two months ago our plan was to basically tick over until we did some more fundraising um ahead of next shoot season starting um, and produce some more meals then and and we've gone from a standing start of doing that to raising funds we've got food in production right now in yorkshire 
got game on the way up there. We're delivering minced venison. We're delivering chicken. We're delivering um, duck. We're delivering all sorts of stuff all over the country, um, as well as the remainder of the pouches from the last run, which have gone up to uh, various charities, including a trip up to London last week to St. Mungo's. Yeah, and the, and the pouches are the pheasant casserole and the pheasant curry. Uh, and I think one of the reasons we've also had to diversify is obviously the production run of those is quite... You can't, it's not something you can get done really quickly, but also there's a we're going to have a bit of a shortage of game at the moment. Certainly with this situation that's arisen, uh, it's probably not going to be a massive amount knocking around uh, that we're going to be able to get our hands on at a good price, like we've been able to in the last couple of years. So that's definitely an issue for the charity. But as long as our donors are there, we'll we'll find stuff. Uh, you know, like we have been now. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive how quickly it's all been turned around. And I should say at this point that if anybody does want to make a donation we'll make sure that we put the link uh where you can do that in the uh, in the text accompanying the podcast so anybody who's listening to this and feels like uh donating a few quid uh will be able to do that so gents i think it's time for us to move on to what is already my favorite part of the podcast uh two episodes in and it's called what's that you're drinking because mine's basically exactly the same as last week i'm going to go first and say that i'm about halfway down my uh, small glass of whiskey and then after that i've got a can of san miguel to to wash it down with um it is as last week it's uh, a little bit early in the day for whiskey so i did put a little bit of water in it but um it's bank holiday weekend so i feel like it's probably all right chris what have you got today you on barocca still no you said you're not <clears throat> last week i was on a beer this week i i'm on a gin and tonic now i know that that's a bit boring but Specifically, I'm on an Adnams Copperhouse gin and tonic. Uh, Adnams because it's from Suffolk. Suffolk's where I grew up. Uh, so anything from Suffolk, I'm very loyal to, including Aspel Cider. I should have had one of those, actually. Maybe I'll go and get one of them in a minute. Uh, <laughs> if you put some gin in the cider, you can drink an old-fashioned West Country cocktail called a dog's nose. A dog's nose. That, that's a good shout. Is that how it makes you feel the next day? Hey, talking of gin and cider, uh, I, used to, I used to home brew my own cider and my I still do uh, slow gin and everything else uh, and uh, I had mates come round and this cider was about 10% um, and I used to put uh, a quarter of a pint of slow gin in the bottom and top it up with my 10% cider and it would go down like a just a, like a normal snake bite type drink and this was sort of post uni uh, and it just I mean one pint of that and it killed everyone it was absolutely brilliant we call that a slider yes <laughs> Uh, so yeah, gin and tonic for me at the moment. But I, if if you guys have got two, then I'll be running out of the room in a minute and going to uh, stock up. <laughs> well, I haven't two drinks actually, but I, I wanted to talk about two um, because I think I think it's important to explain um, first and foremost. Well, because obviously of the of the wild food aspect of things, now is is a good time to be thinking about the future in terms of drinks, right? Because it's a little while before the elderflower is going to start. There's a bit of water mint about, so I guess. You could get some water mint uh, from by your pond or near a stream in, you know, if you're out for your daily walk. Um, and so, you, you know, we're a little way away from, uh, from, from elderflower champagne, but you could pick some water mint and maybe use that to make a little syrup with some sugar. And then you could just add that to some vodka for a little martini, shake that over some ice. Um, what I'm going to be drinking while we talk about this though is some proper lockdown fare here okay and i'm going to make it while while i talk you through the ingredients okay it starts with the wine. Oh, wow. so, 
too limited for time. Okay. Um, first of all, I've got a, a little shaker full of ice here because I think that's quite important. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put some ice into my crystal glass here. Just I don't know if you can hear that, but that'll that'll be good. And then I've left some in the shaker as well because I'm gonna add to that some rum. Now this is Fiji Overproof Bounty Rum. Now this is not something that you would ever choose to buy. This was left at a drinks party at a friend's house about 10 years ago. Last year, when they emigrated to Canada, they left it behind. And not being one to, to like to see booze go to waste, I thought, well, I'll take that. So I tried to drink some and realised how revolting it was. Um, and then I put some cloves in it and some sugar and a load of mint that I had kicking around. And I left it in the cupboard and I got it out about three months later and thought, oh, that'll be better now. And it was still revolting. Um, and I got it out recently because i've run out of everything else to drink um in my lockdown scenario and so i decided it must be time to bring out the bounty 58 percent alcohol by volume um overproof run and give it a go uh, only problem is it's still revolting so i thought <laughs> <laughs> what i've done is i've got some fresh blood orange juice here which um i got from some oranges that were going to get thrown out and i I'm, I'm managed to pick those up uh, at a little food hub the other day where I was, so I put some of that into my um, into my little cocktail shaker. You can probably hear it going in, uh, and I'm going to top that up with a bit of rum, not too much because it is overproof and and pretty revolting. So I just put a little bit of that in there, um, and then a bit of cinnamon, a bit of powdered cinnamon. You've probably got a bit of that kicking around at home. Just chuck a bit of that in there, and so we're going in the old sort of um, rum punch scenario here. Make sure your cocktail shaker's done up. Give it a little shake and then pour that out over some ice and that'll be my little drink to have while we while we have a chat and like that and i've literally probably gone one part rum to about five parts blood orange juice um that is just about yeah that's just about palatable now so that's good um but there's nothing <laughs> wild, nothing wild foodie or local about that so i wanted to talk about a drink you can make now that will be ready in about a year. Is that okay? Have I got time to do that? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, before you do that now, I want to know if you've got a name for the concoction that you've just uh, just brewed up. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, what should we call it? I mean, this is a, I mean, it's a sort of a, it's not really very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think it's like a cocktail like this should be called something like Sheer Desperation. <laughs> Perfect. I think that'll do nicely. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to have my sheer desperation. That that was a that was a rum rum orange cinnamon. That was it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Just a little, basically a little rum cocktail. Just like a rum punch, really, but just shaken over a bit of ice, bit of uh, bit of loveliness in there. So, okay. Sorry. I feel like I'm taking over your your podcast a little bit, George. But I'm going to I'm going to carry on talking for four minutes, and then I'm going to no. Shut please up do. Tomorrow. That's why you're here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> You can't see, obviously, because we're we're on radio rather than on telly. But you can't see is that I'm I'm clasping a bit of um, a bit of blackthorn uh, twig in my hands that I plucked from the hedgerow on my dog walk today. Chris, have you got a bit as well? I, I have got a bit. Yeah, I've got a bit right in front of me. As have I. Oh, George, you managed to get some. I had no idea where you. were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Are you okay? I, I was fascinated by the fact you said you texted us earlier saying grab a bit of Blackthorn for the podcast. And I, I'd just been looking at it in the garden thinking how great it looked this week. And then, and then you asked me to go clip it. I thought it was very ironic. So it does look beautiful, doesn't it? In the hedgerow, like big falls of lace kind of scattered along the hedgerow. And, it, and that first flower to come out generally in the hedgerow is the hawthorn, right? So we see that first. And then the Blackthorn is normally the last hedgerow um, uh, a sort of deciduous hardwood hedgerow thing for flower, apart from the elder, which will go uh, any minute now, will start sort of springing up and leaping into action. Um, and the the, uh, the name for Blackthorn uh, at this time of year is the May tree. Okay, uh, George, have you ever heard the phrase cast no clout till May be out? I have. My prep school headmaster used to refuse to allow uh, summer dress until um, it was 25 degrees or something, and he used to quote that at us the whole time okay yeah and you thought what's this old nutter on about yeah exactly so i'm this this there's there's a folklore attached to that or as i understand it and these things can get you know they can get confused in handing down the, the generations particularly after a couple of sheer desperations um what happens is the idea is that the blackthorn comes into bloom after the the, the the last chance of a severe hard frost okay so the idea is that you wait until you see these big falls of lace of the of the blackthorn tree blossoming and that's when you know you can start to leave your big winter coat at home. yes that was that was what he always told us as well yeah that's good to know great so so that bit we understand now um have you got some almost but not quite open buds of the flower on your little bit of blackthorn twig there yes i believe i yeah. do yeah okay great i'd like you to pluck one or two of those off and just pop them in your mouth and chew them up a little bit and i want you to tell me um whether they a taste slightly bitter and b taste slightly of almond this you honestly this could be anything you're asking me to do right now uh, i mean for all i know that for all i know there's some sort of mad thing about it it's probably poisonous but anyway i'll carry on no 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 if it was poisonous we probably wouldn't put the berries in our slow gin because of course blackthorn is <laughs> low tree uh, as well it's got a lot of names the black okay the flowers in my mouth okay any bitterness yeah a bit mm. yeah so you should get a sort of astringent almost and i get quite a bit of almond out of it but not everyone does and 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 it, once it, the flowers have opened, it tastes less like that. But at the very end of the twigs, you'll probably notice that there's a few little tiny green leaves starting to emerge as well. Yeah. Okay. And once they... Yeah, uh, I think my... I, Tim, I think uh, here in Hampshire, I reckon we might be a bit further along than you guys are because um, uh, I haven't really got any flowers or flower buds at all, um, but I've got an awful lot of leaf. Okay. Well, so take some of the small leaf. Uh, and, and chew a bit of that up, give that a little nibble as well, because what you find is that it's got a sort of bitter almond flavour to it. And as the leaves get a little bit bigger than they are now, basically once the last of the drop uh, blossom has dropped and most of the first lot of leaves are sort of coming up to being a decent um, sort of pea size or a little bit bigger, you can pluck a load of those off. And the French, um, I say that in quite a generalist, generalistic way, the French, not I'm sure that not all the French do this, but um, in France... <laughs> Uh, there is an origin of this drink called Epine, E-P-I-N-E, with an acute circumflex over the E at the start, not the late, not the last E. I don't know how I pronounce that. You guys are probably a bit better at your foreign than me. Um, they take the leaves, they mix them with sugar, red wine, and mark, or, or brandy, basically. The brandy stops the wine re-fermenting with the sugar, the same as you would if you were going to make your own elderberry port. But the, the leaves from the blackthorn 
give that lovely, slightly bitter almondy flavor. But once you've done it, you have to leave it for a year or at least three months before you pass it off and then drink it. So that's why I thought we could make it today or in the coming season, because it's just about to, to be ready uh, to do that. We could make a bottle and then we could we could talk again in a year's time and see how you got on. That sounds like an epic plan. That just, sounds just, great, just yeah. A, just give us a really brief recap then. So, so just quick process, what to put in. If I was going to make a sort of standard, let's say, wine bottle sized amount, um, let's take the wine bottle that we've got the red wine in. It doesn't need to be brilliant red wine. Uh, certainly don't waste the fine wine on this, um, but tip it, tip it into a jug or something. And then into the wine bottle, I'm going to put, um, let's say, I'm going to put two ounces of sugar. You don't need a lot, two ounces yeah. of sugar. And then I'm going to put in a, a handful, a good cupped handful of the leaf. I'm going to poke those all in. I'm going to rinse them off under the tap. And then I'm going to poke them down into the wine bottle. Then I'm going to add up to probably about, I certainly want to cover the sugar and the leaf with brandy, but I don't want any more than a fifth of a bottle of brandy in there, in, in the bottle, as in the wine bottle. We don't want more than a fifth of that to be cheap brandy. And then I'm going to top the rest of that up with the red wine. Now, what's happened immediately is brilliant because there's now more wine in the jug than will fit back in the bottle. So, <laughs> so, so straight away, you've legitimately got a reason that you need to drink that wine. So you can drink that wine, put the cork back in the bottle, write a little label about what it is, give it a good shake. And I'd suggest you sort of give it a shake uh, every couple of days for the next couple of, you know, for the next week or something until the sugar's all dissolved. Then put it away, leave it in the cupboard, and in three months or so, maybe set a, a reminder or something, um, or just forget about it until you find it again. In three months, you might take it out and drain it off the leaves and then rebottle it and leave it for a bit longer. Uh, but to be honest, it doesn't, it, it's not the end of the world if you don't. It just might go a bit little, a little bit gritty and a bit cloudy. Uh, and in a year's time, you will have this very obscure French drink. And it comes about, like all these things, out of, uh, out of the need, really. So French wine, we all know there's lots of great French wine, but they also produce an awful lot of, you know, of, of mouthwash. And that... Uh, until recently um, was made into port and other things and this is just sort of a homemade way really of using some of your sort of slightly iffy rough wine and turning it into something a little bit better that's that's mega knowledge and it's that sounds fantastic i can't wait to give that a go yeah i agree you'll have to be patient because it does take a while to make but um, (laughs) yeah but once it's there you'll be away so Tim, I, I've, I've got a question. I mean, obviously you've got all this knowledge about the uh, the various things you get up to. I mean, we we've spoken about mushrooms quite a bit, and uh, <laughs> I remember one particular funny episode walking to a peg. I'm not I'm not sure if it's for consumption on the podcast, but I'll go with it anyway. Uh, <laughs> your your knowledge of mushrooms is quite exceptional, uh, and uh, I remember waking up hungover uh, on the sofa one Sunday morning, flicking on the TV and seeing you on Sunday brunch with a whole tray of mushrooms getting very excited about the wall, which did make me laugh a lot. Um, when walking to the peg, I remember you telling me that uh, you could pretty much guarantee you could find a magic mushroom in this field by the time you get to your peg. Um, I, I don't know if there's much truth in that, but uh, tell me a bit about this love for mushrooms, because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, fungus. I mean, what is there not to love about fungus? Uh, <clears throat> I think, right, this is it. Let's start at the beginning. For me, the wild food thing, right, where that comes into my thing is there's two types of wild food there's stuff you can eat and is useful for medicine and then there's stuff that is mind-blowingly brilliant okay um and for me mushrooms are up there so so there's some mushrooms you can find that are a bit rubbish but 
you wouldn't bother learning to find them and identify them, right? You just go, oh, that's some mushroom I'm not interested in. And that's where I draw my line. I'm not interested in knowing about a plant that's edible unless it really tastes great. I'm not going to waste my time cluttering up my already frankly disorganized and useless mind um, with information that isn't going to feed me or, or enhance my life. I mean, it's like um, it's like celandine. Have you seen common celandine in the fields at the moment? It's everywhere. Yellow flowers, little tiny green heart-shaped leaves with a mottling on them. Someone asked me the other day, can you eat celandine? I was like, I don't think you can. And I looked it up and, and you can't eat it. Well, you could, but it wouldn't be very nice very bitter very astringent but it is good for as a, as a remedy for piles well i, I mean <laughs> really I mean, in this name, I, for a start i don't know how to I mean, i'm not interested in how you begin to apply that and secondly <laughs> secondly i think we've moved on from there so mushrooms for me uh, are represent the absolute sort of zenith of foraging in the autumn Right now, there's a brilliant uh, spring mushroom around, or there will be any time now, called the St. George's mushroom, which comes out traditionally around St. George's Day. And that is a, a meadowland mushroom and probably an exception from the autumn rule. And the other one that would be an exception right now would probably be the morel, although we're a little way away from that, I'd have thought. Um, apart from that, it's more or less autumn time action, which means it lends itself very well to a lot of the game birds that we start to eat at that time of year. And, you know, so it all sort of fits in quite well. But mushrooms, the great thing about them is if you know what, three of them look like so let's say penny barn sep um whatever you want to call it porcini um chanterelle and um let's say hedgehog mushroom if you pick those three mushrooms and learn how to identify them you can identify them quite easily they're all fairly safe you can pick those mushrooms in good quantity without having any kind of stress in your life about them as long as you're reasonably careful and they are the most phenomenal ingredients they're worth a fortune to chefs people love eating them they're, and they're, they're truly unique and delicious flavors when you add to that the fact that mushrooms basically control they control a lot of the environmental and biological processes on the planet so for example without without yeast which is a fungus we wouldn't have any wine that's pretty shocking. Um, so we, we, we need to be happy about that. Without, um, without the fungus holding the soil together, you'd have no soil because it would all get washed away. Mycological, so mycelium, which is the, the root network, if you like, the single one cell wall thick root network of the, of the mushrooms that live in the soil, but not the fruiting body, which is the actual mushroom that you see, but the kind of the roots of the plant, if you like, it's not a plant, it's a fungus, but you get me. Um, these incredible structures can hold 10 times their own weight in water. So they're fantastic for water retention. I mean, fungus is just brilliant. And, you know, it's, they're, be, they're using, um, so the psilocybin mushroom, the magic mushroom that you and I were talking about, this is our native psilocybin mushroom, which is the Liberty cat mushroom, psilocybin semilantia. That is uh, that psilocybin inside there, which is the active ingredient that, that gives you the, um, the exciting uh, time, if that were, were your thing and you were into that. Um, probably not before shooting would be my advice. I was going um, to say, I think we should probably put a very clear message here that we do not, under any circumstances, encourage taking magic mushrooms before shooting. I think that's an important or, message. Or, or, to put at all. or at all. Or at all. We're not condoning that. No, we're not condoning illegal activity. Definitely not. But they are developing medicines for the use of treatment um, for end of life care and also for, for for depression and eating disorders, all from that that um, that that mushroom species. So that's that's quite an impressive thing. Mushrooms have a huge amount to offer us. You can grow oyster mushrooms on toxic waste and end up with waste that's no longer toxic and mushrooms you can eat. So you know we mustn't overlook the value of mushrooms in the coming challenges ahead of us. That's fascinating. Um, so you've spoken quite passionately about about mushrooms and i'm gonna hazard a guess and say that they're up there with your favorite wild foods 
but sort of brings me quite nicely on to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about what is your least favourite wild food, maybe even your least favourite game meat, the thing that you just, lots of people love, but you just can't see what all the fuss is about. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, so my least favourite game meat, uh, to be honest, it's probably red stag in, in rut. I mean, you know, I can understand why you'd want to go and shoot a roaring stag, but if you've seen one covered in its own urine mixed with Highland bog water, um, which is rolling about in for so long. It's got so obsessed, and, you know, we all do this perhaps when we're teenagers, but um, it's become so obsessed with breeding that it's forgotten to eat anything for several weeks, and then it gets shot, um, you know, which is an important part of deer management. I get that. But the meat, I mean, it's, it's like you shoot a roebuck at the end of the of the of the um of the rut it, it's poor quality you know it's lost all of its sort of fat it, you know it's in it's very lean it's been worried about other stuff it's not as bad as the red deer in rut but the absolute epitome of meat that i don't want to eat is red deer stag that's been shot in the rut that's a good yeah, i completely understand because because i had an experience exactly as you say with the a, a, a roe deer stag a buck rather that somebody had uh, kindly given me a shoulder from and I think, you know, they're, they're kind of awash with testosterone at that point as well, aren't they? And honestly, I cooked it and you could smell it all the way down the corridor of the flat. And it was almost inedible. Um, it was just not very pleasant. It's like a cross between slightly livery, badly hung beef and the smell you know the taste of the smell in an old school locker room it's like that it's yes like, sort of musty no there's nothing good about it i mean and you know so i would say that that's my least favorite wild meat um definitely but you know very happy to eat it when it's not in that state george yours what's yours well i think probably it would be that um that you know uh roe deer from the rut that that was really not an enjoyable experience but uh, so I won't be doing that again. Other than that, I'm pretty keen on most most things. Um, I'm not very brave about the um, about things like kidney and liver and that sort of stuff. So even in you know, even lamb's livers and that kind of stuff, not they don't really do anything for me. You need to get over. Need to get over that. I mean, it's, yeah. It, I, Apart from, the, apart from the ethical argument of that if you're going to kill the animal, you must eat as much of it as you can. Um, some of the most delicious and tasty textural delights uh, you will ever have come from the inside of the animal. I mean, um, but it's very important that it's very fresh and that you know how to cook it. And I think that is the big challenge with offal. Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. where I've been going wrong. Chris, how about you? Have you got anything that you just can't be getting on with? Yeah, so... I think mine has to be woodcock. Uh, it's people are very sad when they hear me say that, but I don't shoot woodcock for that reason. I just, I don't know. Like you were describing with the, with the, the school locker room smell, there's something about woodcock that I just can't get it. I can't get it down. Uh, and so I don't know why. That it's just much stronger than others for me. And <laughs> Chris, yeah. you must surely have heard. Uh, my dad always says that the best way to eat a woodcock is to. Um, to put it on a piece of bread and put it in the oven, then take it out, throw the bird away and eat the piece of toast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. Well, I think I think you both, both you and your extended family, need to have both of you, the pair of you, need to have a word with yourself. Um, <laughs> I mean, I am very happy for for other people not to eat woodcock, and I think we need to be very careful about how many woodcock we do eat. And uh, and you know, I would say that for any wild resource, um, if you're picking mushrooms and there's a big patch of them, only take a third, leave a third for something else, and leave a third for next year to to, to spawn and do all of that. And I I apply the same. Uh, to my woodcock shooting um l- l- anyone who's seen me shoot will know that i probably don't need to worry about conservation too actively um, but <laughs> i would say that woodcock you know cook, cooked well handled properly which is important not hung for too long which is also important and then cooked correctly is one of the finest things you will ever eat particularly with a little sort of runny buttery sauce made by blending the half cooked guts with some uh, garlic and a bit of thyme and oh okay I'll, I'll try it again if you cook it for me tim then we're well do you know oh, what that sounds I've like a deal three, i've got three woodcock <laughs> i shot this year in in northumberland or cumbria anyway in my freezer so i think in a year's time we should get together we should eat those woodcock and we should drink our our vintages of epine and see how we get on that sounds like a cracking plan. I'm really up for that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It makes a far change from, from having to talk over the internet, doesn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah, by then we'll is... be allowed to actually meet in person. That'd be good. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, you say that, George, you've never met me. You don't know whether that's going to be a good thing or not. Well, I'm sure it will be, Tim. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> so, Tim, I've got one final question um and you don't have to answer if you don't like want to because you are a professional chef and i don't want to ruin any future business prospects for you but um can you tell us about a game cooking disaster that you might have had um well i've witnessed a few (laughs) (laughs) okay no names no 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 names i i say i think one of the biggest mistakes that you can make uh is is to think oh okay this is right let me just let me rephrase this a little bit I'm going to say I'm going to use my own example. Uh, when I was new to game cookery, I remember choosing um, some some big old cot birds off the game cart uh, because I thought that they were big and that would be the best. You know, I'd be getting the best deal for my my brace if I took a couple of big old cot birds. I then took them home and I lovingly plucked them and gutted them and tried to roast them, having hung them for a couple of days. And they were tough and very strongly flavoured. And of course, that's not the cockbird's fault. It's my fault for approaching them and trying to do the wrong thing with the wrong thing. So what I would say is one of the biggest faux pas with game cookery is almost certainly trying to roast a pheasant that isn't roast worthy. If you imagine that a chicken that's reared for, um, for roasting would be sort of no more than 40 days old, really, by the time it goes for slaughter, uh, you can begin to understand that a pheasant is older than that before it's even released at the beginning of October, right? Or released into the woods, say, in the middle of the summer for shooting in October. So uh, a, a cock pheasant shot before sort of mid-November is probably going to be roastable. And a hen pheasant shot before Christmas is probably going to be roastable. But apart from that, you're sort of barking up the wrong tree. That doesn't mean they're not delicious to use in different ways, but I probably wouldn't be plucking them and roasting them. So having served a couple of very tough, very stringy <laughs> and quite strongly flavoured roast cock birds to a very unappreciative crowd of mates when I was about 19... I'd say that that's probably the biggest game cooking faux pas I've ever taken part in. That's really interesting, that. It's, it's a really good bit of advice as well, because I think that a lot of people are keen to introduce their friends to game who maybe haven't had the, the chance to have it before. And 
the, the temptation is to go out, we're going to do a traditional roast and we're going to whack a bit of bacon on the top and put it in the oven and it comes out dry and boring and not very exciting. And there's just so many other things that you can do, aren't there? Well, and even if you are going to roast a pheasant, let's say you get a couple of nice hen birds from a from a early November shoot you've been out on and you plot them and dress them and leave them in the fridge for two or three days after you've done that so they controlled you know controlled hanging without the guts in and everything else so you get a nice bit of extra flavor to the birds even if you just sling those in a tray and try and roast them as you would a chicken from the shop you're you're on a hiding to nothing you've got to start with a really hot pan I'd probably brush the outside with olive oil or some bacon fat salt pepper thyme leaves sage leaves everything chucked in the pan good glug of bacon fat or olive oil or dripping or whatever you're going to use and roast the birds in the pan to start with really hard on their backs and then two minutes on each side and then a minute on the breasts and then flip them back over onto the back and that pan hopefully that's one that can go in a hot oven chuck it in the hot oven give them 10 to 15 minutes take them out leave them to rest in the pan having turned them back onto their backs when they go in the oven when you take them out to rest turn them back onto their breasts so that the juices can go down into the breast that way you get great color you get good flavor from the bones you're not over roasting the bird and you're not waiting to to get that color and thus overcooking it in the in the process they won't dry out they'll be tender and delicious but the rest is really important as well fantastic well that's really really useful advice and i'm sure lots of people will be uh, trying that out um, so, Tim, the final thing I want to ask you is we've already discussed the government mandated one hour of daily exercise. When people are out walking, what wild foods could they be looking out for at this time of year? Right now, well, I mean, at the risk of upsetting everyone on Facebook, who's definitely had enough posts about wild garlic. You could definitely be picking wild garlic at the moment. Um, Cadbury's cream eggs, there's quite a few of those about. Um, <laughs> Three-cornered leek, have you heard of that? That's another allium uh, plant. That's that was a sort of it's from um, it's from the Indian subcontinent actually. It was brought over by Victorian gardeners. But that's a, a similar looking plant to wild garlic, but it's a, it's got a three cornered sort of leaf. It's a bit taller and, and it doesn't have the bro the breadth of the leaf either, and it's not quite as dark green. Allium triquatum, if you want to look it up, that's a three cornered leaf. That's worth looking out for. Would you find that in this? Would you find that in the same sort of environment as, as wild garlic, sort of, you know, woody, dampish? Yeah, woodland edges rather than within the wood. It doesn't like shade in the same way that wild garlic will tolerate it. So probably more, you know, um, it's quite a common plant. You, you'll probably find it out and about. And if not, you know, just when you're next trimming the garden and you smell onion, that's probably what you found. Um, the other thing, uh, there's vetch in the hedgerow at the moment, which is sort of the wild grandfather of pea. You'll see that it looks a little bit like a pea plant. It's either got a yellow or a purple flower on it. Um, check what it is, obviously, before you eat it, because there's some nasties out there at the moment too. So um, hemlock, water drop, wart, that's out. It looks like flat leaf parsley. Don't eat that. That'll kill you. Um, Lords and ladies is sort of which is the common orm, uh, Arum maculatum. Watch out for that. That's a, a sort of waxy leafed thing. That's not very nice. You don't want to eat that. Um, giant hogweed, that'll make your skin nasty. It's cousin, standard hogweed. You can eat that, common hogweed, that's fine. What else is in the hedgerow at the moment? Um, let me think. Um, navel pennywort, you could pick that and eat that. It's also sometimes called wall pennywort. Sorrel, good old sheep sorrel, that's, that's, um, that's out and about as well. There's loads, I mean, there's loads of stuff. Dandelion even is up and about. You know, there's plenty of stuff out in the hedgerow. What would, what would you do with a dandelion? What would I do with it? Well, I te- I, we tend to feed them to the family tortoise, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but Tim, I think you raised quite a good point there, which is um, if you are out foraging, 
don't eat anything unless you're absolutely certain what it is. And maybe even if you think you are certain, just double check as well, because there are some some false friends out there, aren't there? Well, I mean, the best way to test them is to feed them to elderly, wealthy relatives. Um, <laughs> if you're not sure what something is, that can land you in a pretty good situation. You either get a nice supper or a lump of inheritance. Well, there's a plan. <laughs> I'm obviously not serious. George, you waited a little bit too long. Well, I think, <laughs> like, I think having, en- <laughs> <laughs> he, he <was definitely laughs> having encouraged people, <laughs> having encouraged people to uh, experiment with illicit substance, substances and also to maybe try and bump off their grandparents. I think maybe that's a good place to leave it <laughs> for this particular episode. <laughs> we better run it past this visitor before we go to air. <laughs> yes exactly um i think we'll just about wrap it up uh i really hope uh and we all hope that uh, everybody listening enjoys it um tim huge thanks for coming taking part with us uh it's been really good fun to have you with us yeah thank you tim thanks once again to everyone for listening uh if you enjoyed the episode do let us know in the comments down below and if you have any thoughts on your least favorite food uh wild game uh foods or have had a culinary disaster that you'd like to share with us Uh, Please also tell us about that in the comments and maybe we'll read some of them out in the next episode. Um, If you don't already, do subscribe to the weekly newsletter uh, for all of our latest content and shooting availability. Uh, You can do that at gunsonpegs.com or you can give us a follow on Instagram at gunsonpegs or find us on Facebook. Uh, Until next time, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 